Melissa Harrison here for our latest edition of the Religion Unplugged podcast. In the studio today, our executive director, Paul Gladder, is joined by guest Stephen Waldman. Stephen's the president and co-founder of Report for America, a national service program that places emerging journalists into local newsrooms. Previously, he was senior advisor to the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Stephen has a new book out about America's ongoing struggle for religious freedom. Let's join he and Paul for their conversation about it now. We're delighted to have an author and entrepreneur and journalist in our studio today, uh, Stephen Waldman. So, Stephen, let me just tell you a few highlights from his career. He uh, wrote a book called Founding Faith, um, a best-selling book. He was a journalist at many outlets, um, an editor. Before he founded, he also founded BeliefNet, which many of our listeners, I hope, had have uh, encountered, and another project called Report for America, uh, which is amazing. And maybe he'll tell us a bit about some of those things, but what he's here to talk about today is his new book, Sacred Liberty, America's Long, Bloody, and Ongoing Struggle for Religious Freedom. So, Stephen, tell us about this book and, you know, uh, what's, what is, what's sort of the thesis here in this book? Well, I, I did a book about 10 years ago about the founding fathers and religion, and it really focused on their views and the First Amendment. But as I researched it more and thought about it over the years, I realized that was actually kind of a big mistake, that it didn't actually all end with the passage of the First Amendment. And in fact, you could argue that uh, we really haven't had religious freedom for most of American history. The First Amendment planted an idea, but it turns out it took another 200 years of real struggle and bloody fights uh, to achieve a really robust model of religious freedom that we that we have today, so it was the book is really about that struggle of how we got religious freedom, um, despite the fact that we had a kind of really brutal wave of persecution of religious groups for hundreds of years here. Uh, so the the notion that we're sort of taught in school that this nation was founded with religious liberty in mind, that that's why the Puritans came here and that it sort of was our, our birthright from the beginning is, is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we really have to understand how we got religious freedom if we're going to have any hope of preserving it. Hmm. You, uh, you point to some heroes, and you, you point to, I believe, James Madison as one. Um, so with this fighting, the, the bloody struggle around religious freedom, was that pre-Madison, post-Madison, maybe help explain the context. Of well, there was, there was bloody struggle before Madison came along for about the first 150 years of uh, America's life or the, the settling of the land that we call America. Uh, most of the colonies were experimenting with kind of theocratic models, meaning there was a, an official state religion. In the New England states, it was the kind of Puritan and then congregational churches. And in the southern states, it was the Church of England, the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was very often uh, taxpayers would pay for uh, subsidizing the salaries of the ministers of the of official state church. And some of it was really brutal. I mean, in the, you know, Quakers were hanged from the Boston Commons by the Puritans for the crime of being a Quaker. Baptists were imprisoned on the eve of the American Revolution for the crime of being a Baptist minister. Um, 
And this, that one in particular was very consequential because it was right in Madison's backyard and he was aware of what was going on. By one count, almost half of the ministers, the Baptist ministers in Virginia had been imprisoned by the time of the American Revolution. So it's a weird situation of Anglican ministers basically beating up Baptist ministers on the eve of the American Revolution. And uh, it was really... Uh, meaningful and consequential because of Madison's witness to all this. And it really fueled his approach to why uh, he wanted a different way. For so, so the constitutional period was a turning point. The, essentially, the founding fathers said, you know, that the approach that the founding grandfathers had taken was not working very well, and we need to do a new approach. So the Constitution did um, take a huge step. And the two big things that the Constitution did were it said you can't have a religious test for office. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately the First Amendment said you can't have an establishment of religion. But what we tend to forget is that all of that just applied to the national government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It allowed for the states to pretty much do whatever they wanted. Hmm. So the next 150 years was spent really fighting through the same issues. There was, there was progress made by the First Amendment, but it, but it only really solved a, a small fraction of mm -hmm. the problem initially. Mm -hmm. So legislatively, how did it become, how did the First Amendment apply eventually, not just to uh, national issues, but to you know, state and, and, and national? Well, the next critical step was the 14th Amendment. So that was the amendment that was passed right after the Civil War. And it, its primary purpose was to ensure that African-Americans got rights. Uh, but the broader sweep of it was to say, you know, those Bill of Rights, uh, those are supposed to protect us against not only the tyranny of the national government, but also the tyranny of the local government. That was a seismic shift in the whole approach to rights in general. Now, it took many decades for that the implications of that to play out. And in the case of the religious freedom clauses of the Bill of Rights, it really wasn't until the 1940s hmm. that it really became enshrined. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the progress ended up happening for reasons, you know, not the Supreme Court, um, uh, victories that were kind of won on the ground. But as a, as a legal matter, it was really the 14th Amendment that, that said, Religious freedom is actually something that should be in every nook and cranny of the country, not just a thing that protects us in a limited way from Congress doing something bad. Okay. So, yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're, we have this narrative that, uh, you know, as Americans that people came from Germany, from England to get away from religious persecution and reached here as an oasis. And so you're, you know, what you are reporting and researching here and explaining to us is that it is, wasn't exactly as cut and dry as that. And you have anecdotes of heroes uh, who were Quakers and Baptists and Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, uh, you, you know, there's many persecuted, but talk about some of these heroes who helped Madison um, and others, you know, define what was religious freedom in a new context. Yeah, you had, uh, you know, there, the Mary Dyer was a, a woman, a, a Quaker woman in Massachusetts who challenged the law against Quakerism and was, was hung by the, common, the Holy Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as it was called, 
uh, said that, and that was a government that professed religious freedom, but it, it was a sign that, you know, re- they were defining religious freedom as we should have the right to live our lives the way we want to, or as a friend of mine says, religious freedom for me, not for thee. Yeah. Um, it wasn't really a universal right. Mm-hmm. So the Baptist ministers who would be, uh, you know, you'd have Anglican ministers come up uh, to uh, a Baptist minister as he was preaching and stick a butt end of a horse whip in his mouth, take him outside, beat him up, throw him in prison. Um, these were were heroes in, uh, and they would go and do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, they they really had their conscience and their faith drove them to persist with this despite being imprisoned and and beaten up. And this persisted throughout American history. Catholics were horribly persecuted, and you would have these situations of, I mean, the one that was the most poignant in, in a way was involved Catholic school children in, in Massachusetts where they were being required to read the Protestant uh, translation of the Bible, and they were saying, and their parents were saying, that's against our religious freedom to force us to read the King James uh, Bible. And the teacher took out a cane and whipped the boy's hands and for 30 minutes until it bled and said, any of you Catholic boys who don't want to uh, read the King James Bible, leave. And 100 Catholic schoolboys left. And they uh, next day, uh, a couple hundred more left. And so that was a protest. The Jehovah's Witnesses um, really are extraordinary. And this was in the, in the 20th century. Um, thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses in America were beaten up, imprisoned, harassed, in one case castrated by a mob for, uh, for exercising their rights of conscience. So the one that sort of vi- just for some reason sticks in my head vividly is that one of the things that they said was that the requirement, the legal requirement to salute the flag mm-hmm. in schools violated the Jehovah's Witnesses' teachings. They thought that was idolatry. And so they said, no, we don't, we, we don't want to salute the flag. That makes the flag into God, and we reserve worship for God, not physical objects or country. And, yeah, there's one guy in Litchfield, Litchfield, Illinois. He's trying to escape a mob. They catch up with him, and the mob drapes a, an American flag over the front hood of the car, and basically says, are you going to salute the flag? And he says, no. And they smash his head into the, into the flag-draped car. Mm-hmm. And he says, are you going to salute the flag? And he says, no. And they smash it again and, they, and again and again. And meanwhile, the, the sheriff is sitting there watching this. So it's, this is not just a you know, lawless mob. This is a, has official sanction. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the Jehovah's Witnesses were particularly important because they end up bringing all sorts of lawsuits that then make it to the Supreme Court and end up expanding everyone's rights. So hmm. a lot of times these, this persecution led to, to progress. There was, right. It was a sort of uh, civil disobedience in a lot of cases that prompted changes hmm. uh, in the law. Wow. So, you know, not that there's any justification for this persecution, but just to understand why these certain groups were held back, it sounds like, you know, are we right to understand that, you know, some Americans were concerned that Catholics were more loyal to Rome than the new nation, or it sounds like that was a similar issue? Um, yeah, there were, there were in, in all of these cases, uh, there were, were com- substantive complaints against the religion. And, and also, in some of the cases, the religions themselves weren't acting particularly well. Like the, in the case of uh, the, 
the Baptists, or who really basically were evangelicals by by a different name, um, the the Anglicans said that the evangelicals um, were undermining authority of the church because they believed in it. You could have a direct relationship with God. Mm -hmm. They were preaching to the slaves, which they thought was was dangerous. Hmm. And they thought that adult baptism was horrendous and undermined morality because it gave a kind of get out of hell free card. Hmm. It was thought and that that would undermine morality. Hmm. So they had these sort of substantive complaints as well as what now seems just more more bigoted mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. the case of the Jehovah's Witnesses the Jehovah's Witnesses part of what made them uh, sort of an interesting case is these were not this was not a humble religion that was preaching tolerance to all they were vociferous in their hatred of Catholics mm. um, mm-hmm. so one of the things that you find out over the course of the of, of American history is that you know Religious liberty is supposed to be for religious groups, even if you think they're obnoxious. Yeah. Like you don't have to be a sweet and passive religion to earn the right to have religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in a lot of these cases, there, you know, there was legitimate disagreement. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Mormons was another case. And probably it, you could make the case that no group was more persecuted in American history than the Mormons. Mm. Um uh, just astonishing stuff that, that mm-hmm. I really didn't know in detail, like the fact that the governor of Missouri mm-hmm. issued an official order for the extermination of the Mormons mm. in Missouri. I mean, essentially a genocide order wow. from the state. Yeah. And uh, but the thing is, not to, obviously not to justify that, is that the Mormons were were not a p- passive uh, group. They mm-hmm. were pushing very hard. They did not believe in separation of church and state themselves, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, they were aggressive, and um, so you know they were they were ruffling feathers. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like that doesn't justify you know massacre or, or violating their their religious rights. Mm-hmm. Religious rights are not only for for the meek. Mm-hmm. Well, this you know this this work I think is of great interest to. You know, people interested in history and theology and, you know, um, uh, the historical record on this topic, but it also seems to have a lot of modern corollaries. And I was thinking to myself, um, you know, even, you know, something in the news like vaccination right now, it's there's like uh, conservative evangelicals who don't believe in it, Orthodox Jewish groups in New York who, you know, apparently are some some communities, not entirely those communities that I mentioned, but groups within those communities believe that could be, a, you know, some kind of violation of religious freedom. Um, and I think you've got quite a few uh, other parallels that you talk about in the book. Um, uh, but it seems like this tension around obedience to God or obedience to the state is a big one um, that um, that's, that's present here, right? Yeah, there's a few parallels or, or issues that keep coming up. Um, one case where you see it is, is I think, in attacks on American Muslims. A lot of the attacks on American Muslims echo attacks that we saw on Catholics and Mormons in particular in earlier parts of, of American history. In particular, one thing that was very interesting to me as the, as the sort of anti-Islam um, sentiment grew was that one of the things people would say is it's not really a religion, that it's more of a power structure it's a uh, it's a it's an engine of foreign tyranny. So you mentioned before that, like one of the attacks on Catholics was that they were under 
the rule of the Pope or Catholic law. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very similar to what the accusation has been against Muslims on Sharia, mm-hmm. that American Muslims are going to have to follow this foreign law right. of Sharia, and they won't be able to be patriotic Americans, mm-hmm. and they'll support undemocratic um, functions. So, I mean, it's it's actually really kind of stunning the re- the, the parallels in the rhetoric between uh, a lot of the criticism of Muslims and the criticisms of Catholics and Mormons, to the point where there, there's this amazing passage that there was uh, Samuel Morse who of the Morse Code, mm. an inventor of, of, of the telegraph. Well, he was also a leading anti-Catholic mm. activist in the 1830s. And you read his writings, and he says, immigration is destroying our country. They're, they're sending us their criminals. Mm. They're, they're coming to... Um, uh, take our country, they are terroristic, they are anti-democratic, and the religion of these immigrants mm-hmm. is going to ruin our country. And it's like very, very evocative of what we're hearing in terms of, uh, of Muslims and, and Mexicans in the case of immigration. He was talking about Catholics. He was talking about Irish Catholics from, from Europe and the religion that was going to destroy America was Catholicism. Uh, now, on the other point where you have this, the, where you have the modern resonances is a very complicated or, or subtle one that I think often gets kind of uh, confusing, which is for a good part of American history, religious freedom meant a, a lack of persecution, like don't shut down churches and don't, you know, hang them and put them in jail for their beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it took a while to get that kind of freedom, but that's like a very, very broad consensus for that now. But there was always a second question of like, well, what happens if there's a secular law that isn't really targeting a religion, but ends up as a side effect constraining religion? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, actually a notable example, this w- involved Mormons and polygamy. Right. In 19th century, like the Mormons, the, the, the government of the United States passed a law banning polygamy. And they didn't say, you know, banning Mormon polygamy. They said polygamy. This is a practice that we don't allow in America for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. the fact was that the only religion that was practicing it was Mormonism. So Mormons made the claim that even though it was a secular law, it was infringing on their religious rights because polygamy was a was a core belief of Mormonism at that moment. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court ruled against the Mormons and said, mm-hmm. actually, religious freedom protects religious belief, but it doesn't necessarily protect religious actions. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a kind of a narrow ruling that ended up really constraining religious freedom rights. I and mean, when you think about things like should a, you know, a Catholic working at a hospital be forced to work on an abortion? Right. Well, under that There's ruling against... that too, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Under the ruling that went against the Mormons, the court would have said, yeah, it's a law is a law. You know, it's, you're, you can go and pray at church if you want, but when you're at work, you got to do whatever, you know, the law or uh, the employer says. Mm-hmm. But starting in, in, the, in the 40s and then accelerating into the 1960s, the Supreme Court and society as a whole started to take a different posture, which was actually, we want America to bend over backwards to accommodate religious groups, to make it so that they can live their lives according to their faith, so that they don't have to choose between their faith and the law. Mm -hmm. 
So as a, a big court case involved Seventh-day Adventists, so some, a woman who was being forced to work on a Saturday, even though her religion said that Saturday was the Sabbath. And again, the, the, the state, South Carolina, said it like, we're not trying to pick on Seventh-day Adventists. It's just the law that you have to be work on Saturdays if that's what the employer wants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, in that case, the court ruled in the other direction. And it was like a huge title shift in the way we approach this. They said, no, actually, even though the law was secular in intent and they weren't really trying to pick on mm-hmm. Seventh-day Adventists, it did infringe on the religious rights of that group. And from then on, we've been in these issues of like, how do we make it so religious people have enough room to live their lives according to their faith? And so a lot of the modern controversies are actually these, what are called accommodation cases, which are really more gray area cases. So like the whole um, debate over the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and the contraceptive mandate. Remember with the the nuns who sued, right? So because they didn't want to be part of the system that would uh, involve uh, prescribing contraceptions, right? Against their religious beliefs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there again, the nuns didn't argue that Congress had intentionally required there to be prescriptions for contraception in order to punish Catholics, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a side effect. That yeah. all of a sudden, all these people, you know, had to prescribe contraception. And so the, so the court had to wrestle with this gray era case that kind of pitted these different rights against each other. And a lot of modern cases are those kinds of things, like the bakers of conscience. Right. Like, should, yeah. should they have to, um, you know, be part of a same-sex marriage <laughs> ceremony? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. With their cake, right? By like making cake. a cake. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, 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 in a, it's a... It never stops being an issue of contention, I guess, in the courts. Um, you point to uh, a, f- a few interesting uh, aspects of history, like you said, World War II in the book, right, had some impact on this topic. What you know, H- Hitler and communism, Nazis and uh, uh, communism. So, what ha- what happened during that epoch? You've referred to it a few times: the forties, the sixties. What changed during that? Uh, yeah, I really think the more I looked at it, the more I thought World War II really changed everything. And, and part of what happened was. First, we're we're fighting fascism. We're fighting against Hitler. And Roosevelt uh, decides that religious freedom is part of what differentiates us from fascists. Hmm. Uh, And that that is part of what we're fighting for. So when he does the Four Freedoms, which is a kind of rallying cry uh, for the country to mobilize around to fight Hitler, one of the four is religious freedom. And... Along with that goes this kind of popular effort to encourage interfaith toleration, where you'd have what we would call tolerance trios, a rabbi, a minister, and a priest. Uh, it's probably somewhere in there the, the, the rabbi, priest, and a minister joke. Right, was walk born, into a bar or something. Walk into a bar. <laughs> I couldn't find the exact day that that joke was formed, but... But it became this thing, and by the thousands of these of these trios would go around to military bases and around the country as a as a team huh. to promote this, and it became part of the propaganda effort hmm. was to promote interfaith toleration between Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Wow! Uh, one of the most dramatic stories was there's this incredible uh, moment where the the there's a, a transport ship called the Dorchester going to Greenland, and it's torpedoed during World War II, and 
the, and, and it goes down. And then stories start to come out from the survivors of these uh, four clergymen, mm -hmm. a rabbi, a priest, and two ministers, hmm. who were this heroic uh, group who gave up their life preservers so that other people could live. And, and according to one witness, the ship is going down with the four of them. And as it's going down, they're each saying their prayers in their own, you know, in their own language. This, this became a kind of riveting example. They quickly rushed out a postage stamp uh, called um, Interfaith in Action. Mm -hmm. Harry Truman says, this stamp uh, gives the most eloquent sermon that we've seen hmm. on religious freedom. So then you have the end of the war, and now the, the war-weary nation has to turn to fighting communism. And at this point, the pre President Truman and then President Eisenhower uh, shift to using religious freedom as a tool against communists. Again, godless communists. The, the communists are against religious freedom. Right. And they are. And against all religion. All yeah. religion. And so it was, again, a very, very important point of contrast that America has religious freedom. And, and the rhetoric goes shifts from being... Uh, America is great because we have religious passion to America is great because we have religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Religious freedom, of course, allows for religious passion, but it also allows for, for pluralism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this massive shift happens. By the time you get to Eisenhower, he does this interesting thing where he, on the one hand, actually inserts a lot of religion into the public square. It's during Eisenhower that under God so shows up in the Pledge of Allegiance. Okay where in God we trust comes on to our paper currency that wasn't hmm. on there before. Um, but he pairs that extra, you know, kind of God talk yeah. with a pluralism. And huh. he's the first president actually who uses the phrase Judeo-Christian. And he makes the case that uh, we are religious people, but we're a pluralistic people. And so from that point on, those two things go hand in hand. Hmm. Yeah, it's the interesting, this trio concept, and does it turn into a quartet? Or is the other Abrahamic faith being Islam harder to, to get into that choir? But you, one thing striking, as you were mentioning, these political leaders uh, who were kind of uh, significant on this topic, George W. Bush got a mention, which might surprise some people. And maybe that fits in, you know, with evangelicals played some kind of role, um, you know, and, and for good and bad, perhaps at different times. But, um, uh, you know, George Bush became president also when 9-11 happened and we went to war in the Middle East. So um, what what did he do pro and con for uh, religious freedom? Yeah, I, I, I actually argue that the, the, he was really important figure for religious freedom, uh, mostly because of how he handled religious matters and Islam after 9-11. Uh, you know, when you think about it, we have riots and pogroms and things like that in this country uh, over false rumors over religion, right? Well, here you had this 9-11. 9-11 happened, and it wasn't false that, you know, this was carried out by Muslims who were who were claiming to do it in the name of God, and they were being, uh, you know, seconded by by the Taliban, a, a religious um, group. So it could have gotten really, really ugly. And what Bush did was he basically made a very clear distinction between the terrorists and American Muslims and Islam in a broader way. He basically says these terrorists are trying to hijack the religion. Mm -hmm. 
So he's not saying Islam is rotten to the core. He's saying Islam is, is in a civil war, in effect. And the bad guys are trying to hijack it. So we should be on the side of the good guys, meaning moderate Muslims. And he also just made the distinction that, you know, is, is may seem obvious, but in times of, you know, kind of mass hysteria goes out the window, which is that American Muslims are your neighbors and judge them on the basis of their behavior as American Muslims. Don't, don't hmm. impute on them the worst behavior of Muslims overseas or mm. terrorists. So, mm -hmm. so you had this really remarkable thing where in the year after 9-11, American public opinion and favorability polls about Islam went up hmm. after, right after 9-11. Wow. And I really do credit Bush with most of that. Um, he, he set this tone and threaded the needle in a way where obviously he was leading a war in both Afghanistan and ultimately in Iraq, Iraq against Islamic terrorism. Uh, so it's not like he was, he was soft on Islamic terrorism, but he did that while making this really important distinction and really champion, championing religious freedom in an important way. Eventually that faded uh, and the, the, that, uh, the anti-Muslim activists mm -hmm. uh, that really started getting stronger, uh, you know, by the end of that decade, uh, basically abandoned Bush's formulation and really mocked Bush for it. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they turned against Bush. Um, you got hit from both sides, I would guess, from the, that group, um, as well as from, you know, Muslims abroad who think this is an, you know. A crusade. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, you know, Bush had practical reasons for this, too, is he was trying to, he was trying to assemble a coalition that included Muslim countries. So he didn't want this to be cast, viewed as a, as a religious crusade. Mm -hmm. He wanted this to be a, a you know, multi-faith attack on radicalism and terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you talk about. You know, he, I think, identified as an evangelical, Bush, right, Jr., um, and, and you make a statement that no group has done more to advance religious liberty than evangelical Christians, is, and, and, um, and, but that they, their position, though, hasn't always been consistent, is that right? Like, what, what have yeah, they, I think that, what have evangelicals done on this? Yeah, I think that evangelical leaders, at least, are kind of on the wrong side of history right now, but it's important for us to see the really significant role at a number of points in American history. So first is, is the, ba the Baptists in Virginia and Madison. Mm -hmm. um, they, they really, as a matter of theology and example and witness and votes, uh, really were the key element in, the, in what was a coalition that Madison put together around religious freedom. When I say votes, the reason is you had this really amazing situation where Patrick Henry became kind of Madison's nemesis, and he kept trying to keep Madison from being elected to Congress. First, he banned him from becoming a senator, and then he gerrymandered the district so that he could, Madison couldn't get elected. And it was all and it turned out this district was full of Baptists okay. and evangelicals, and and and. Uh, Patrick Henry's forces and James Monroe, who's running against him, spread the word that Madison doesn't believe in religious liberty anymore because he doesn't want a uh, Bill of Rights, which is true. Uh, but Madison had really worked his whole life to defend religious freedom, so it was a bit of a, you know, ironic charge against him. Yeah. But it was true that he didn't really want a, a Bill of Rights. Okay. And so he came back home and essentially made one of the most consequential campaign promises in American history 
which was to his evangelical constituents, he said, if you support me, I will propose a Bill of Rights. Wow. And they did support him. He won his hmm. race for Congress on the basis of, of Baptist votes mm -hmm. and then went to Congress and proposed what became the First Amendment. So, um, and they, and Baptist theology, whether it's from even going back to Roger Williams, supported separation of church and state mm -hmm. for theological reasons, both to, because they, it would protect them from getting persecuted, but also because evangelicals said that, uh, to render unto Caesar what's his and, and, um, believed that having less government involvement in religion would actually help religion flourish, mm -hmm. which Madison believed too. So that was one part of it. Then you mm. had the Second Great Awakening, uh, which happened in the 1820s or so. And the that revival was, around America on exactly. Christian religion, right? With yeah. George Wakefield was... Or, well, that was, that was first, first, one, first, first one. Great Awakening. The oh, Second yeah, the Great Awakening was... uh, in the 1820s was, was um, Charles Finney and... Oh. and um, you know, growth of, of Methodism and, and Baptist faith. And they, mm -hmm. and it was happening around the same time as the, the collapse of the religious establishments in the States. So when we talk about mm -hmm. religious, religious establishments, it's things like in the, you know, in Connecticut, they taxed people to pay for the congregational ministers. So there were all these state rules, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, uh, at the point of the American revolution, nine of the 13 colonies banned Jews and Catholics from holding office. Wow. So there were still a lot of rules in the States that were not against religious freedom. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you had this like virtuous circle where the, where the, the, uh, this religious fervor helps destroy these regulations. Mm -hmm. And, and in turn, the collapse of those religious regulations makes it easier for this religion to flower. Right. So you have this nice, like virtuous circle mm -hmm. where the, um, the freedom leads to more religion and more religion leads to more freedom. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I mentioned is, is around the 14th Amendment. I mentioned to you before that like part of what gave us religious freedom was the 14th Amendment. Well, one thing people don't talk about is the guy who wrote the 14th Amendment, John Bingham, was a devout Christian who talks over and over again about how this is part of uh, the divine plan for America. Yeah. Is to have this 14th Amendment in part to protect religious freedom. Hmm. And people don't. People have never looked at the kind of what I view as kind of even evangelical influence into Bingham and the creation of the 14th Amendment as well. Mm -hmm. uh, now, why do I think that, that evangelicals are on the wrong side of history now? Well, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the number one threat, in my opinion, to religious freedom right now is the attack on American Muslims. Mm. Um, you have uh, uh, one poll that said that half of Republicans in America, we're not willing to declare that Islam should be legal hmm. in America. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a pretty fundamental attack on religious freedom rights, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of evangelical leaders are going along with this or mm -hmm. encouraging it, mm -hmm. um, which I think, you know. And this relates to president, our current president, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And how do, you, how do you rank him, uh, you know, his record on religious freedom and how much his administration and policy is um, uh, related to what you just said, this, these, these new sentiments on American Muslims. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to say something that I think will, will probably uh, some of your listeners might disagree with, is um, even though he talks a lot about religious freedom and he's done some really positive things in terms of rights of conscience for healthcare workers and things like that, 
I actually think he's probably one of the worst presidents in American history on religious freedom, specifically because of of what he has said and done on Muslims. The the idea of having a ban on immigrants that is based on your religion, that just never, even in the worst moments of the 18th century, uh, no one went that far. And the idea of having a registry where all people of one religion would sign up, uh, again, you know, you have to go back to the, well, the closest thing we had was the internment of Japanese Americans um, to, to something like that. Now, fortunately, that hasn't happened, but that was part of what he proposed, and his rhetoric on this has been very similar to the anti-Muslim activists in a, in a particular way, which is that he routinely conflates Muslim terrorists with regular, ordinary Muslims. He just talks about it constantly as if it's the same thing. That Islam and and strengthens the idea that Islam is inherently terroristic, and therefore can't be trusted. And you have and so you have these groups that are that are mainstream groups in America that are on radio and TV and give lot get lots of oxygen who who literally say that Muslims who support Sharia should not be allowed to hold office. Mm-hmm. It's like really going back to the 18th century. Um, in terms of advocacy of real restrictions on religious freedom. So, you know, my hope would be that modern evangelicals uh, would look at this, and and this is not a matter of them disagreeing with, you know, modern secularists or atheists. This is a matter of modern evangelicals disagreeing with 19th century evangelicals. Mm. It's like, you know, get back in touch with the history of, of your, your forefathers mm-hmm. who were so articulate and were so important and gave their lives for this kind of religious freedom. Um, listen to what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, because religious freedom will, will die if it doesn't have a universal spirit to it. It mm-hmm. can't be religious freedom for me, but not for thee. Right. You know, it, or it, when, when I'm a minority religion who's oppressed, but when I'm a majority religion, right. I can't turn and oppress others. Right, exactly. Um, so it only it only really works if everyone has a kind of one-for-all, all-for-one attitude that, uh, you know, even though I disagree with that religion, I have to defend their right to, to practice it or else the whole, the whole pact falls apart. The whole edifice of religious feel, freedom will fall apart, and we will suffer from that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we compare as a, as a nation on this topic to others, if you did thinking around you know, comparative religious freedom? Well, you know, I almost, I almost titled this book um, America's Greatest Invention uh, because I, I actually think this is one of our greatest achievements, this American model of religious freedom. And it's, it's not just that we have, uh, you know, less persecution. Like there are other countries you can go to that don't have religious persecution. But we're the only, uh, we're only industrialized country that has managed to have uh, a lot of freedom from persecution and have religious vibrancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember this chart that very vividly that the Pew Research Center did that plotted affluence and religiosity. Hmm. among countries. Mm-hmm. And it was this amazing chart. Like in one part of the chart, you have this cluster of countries that are poor but very religious, like Djibouti and Ethiopia and things like that. And then on the other end of the chart, you have this this cluster of other countries that are rich or affluent or advanced, but pretty secular. 
you know, Germany and Sweden and England. And then off kind of on its own up in the upper right of the chart is this one little stray dot, which is the United States. It's the only country that has managed to have both religious vibrancy and religious freedom hmm. at the same time. Uh, certainly the only country that does that now. And as far as I can tell, one of the only countries in world history. So I think America hmm. really has figured out something that has been bedeviling, to say uh, <laughs> um, an appropriate phrase, mm -hmm. uh, countries for millennia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is really one of what makes America exceptional. But we're going to blow it if we don't understand what it really means and how we got it and how we can preserve it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, so I'm just trying to think of some. I have a friend who lives in another country whose outside observation is that America designed this invention um, and wasn't prepared for, you know, it worked in sort of the Judeo Christian world, but it doesn't work adding on Islam or others. And how do you respond to that kind of a notion? Is this, is what we've built robust enough um, to have sort of. Uh, I don't know what you call it, open doors or more welcoming toward, toward all faiths and all people. Well, I, I think this is a moment of testing on that. You know, up until a few years ago, I would say, yeah, we have. We've proven because each new religious minority that has come, uh, we've absorbed them. And that was what was happening to Muslims before 9-11. Um, in fact, that was what was happening to Muslims before Trump. And uh, But now it, it is called into question in the case of, of Islam. And I am pretty optimistic about it. You know, I think one, one of the moments that I thought was uh, most encouraging was when, um, when, the, when the idea of having a registry for Muslims was proposed. Mm -hmm. The head of the Anti-Defamation League, which defends against anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. got up and said, um, if you do a registry of Muslims, I will register as a Muslim. Hmm. A, a rabbi mm -hmm. who, who said this. And as you know, there's been lots of, you know, there's plenty of hostility between Jews and Muslims in the Middle mm -hmm. East, but this guy said, like, that's what religious freedom means. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so e even though there's there's an erosion of, uh, of consensus around what role does Islam play in it, you've also seen, a, you know, a counter to that where people have said, no, actually you know, what religious freedom means is defending the rights of religious minorities, even if we don't like them, mm -hmm. and even if we disagree with them. Mm -hmm. So, but, but it scares me because you have, you've never before had a president push, you know, attacking a particular religion. The other thing is the, the, the whole, you know, the internet, you know, the, the mm -hmm. role of media and the internet is such a wild card now. We've never, yeah. you know, we don't really know how to kind of regulate a, uh, a speech that is, against religious freedom or against religious minorities without ending up harming freedom of speech. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of an unsolved problem. So you have things that are said and that, you know, I gotta say this, it's like it's Muslims now, but, mm -hmm, but right. that just happens to be the group that is, is the, is the unpopular religious minority right now. We've had like, we've had at least six or seven different religions in our history that have, have, had their moment as the unpopular religious mm -hmm. minority. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the broad sweep of it, I kind of look at the attacks on Muslims that way. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just about the attacks on Muslims. It's a, an attack on the, on the principle of religious freedom 
And if it if it collapses, it's not just going to be Muslims that are the victims of that. It's going to be everyone. Right, right. Well, and if if we are, uh, you know, uh, have this great invention, and you think about how, you know, Muslims integrate in large part very well in the United States, you know, with a few exceptions, of course, of people who've radicalized. Um, and a bit but, better than Europe. And I think yes, part of why... Yeah. I think part of why Muslims have integrated better here mm-hmm. is the American model of, model of religious freedom. Like there's a, mm-hmm. many Muslims in America have more freedom to practice Islam here in America than they did in Muslim majority countries right. where they came from. Right, where there's persecution between Muslim groups. Exactly, and, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, American Muslims don't want to trade the freedom they have here for some caliphate or... Uh, you know, Sharia system in mm-hmm. the rest of the world, they, they have it better than they've ever, ever had it before. They, it, this has been much in the way that you hear American Jews talk about how this has been, you know, America has been this blessing for, yeah. for Jews. Um, yeah. Prior to 9-11, and even to some extent after 9-11, American Muslims said the same thing. Mm. They were very, actually very happy with their, with their status uh, in America. And I think it is part of why there has been less radicalism. Mm-hmm. But we could we could mess that up. You mm-hmm. know, if we start if we start taking away religious rights from Muslims, you could have the same thing that's happened in Europe, where they've become radicalized in part because, you know, uh, Parisian police go around telling women that they have to take off their burkinis mm-hmm. because it violates the secularism law of France. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a good way, I think, to lead to, you know, worse religious freedom. And that's a good example mm-hmm. of a, of a quote unquote, you know, Western um, enlightened country that is messing up its approach to religious freedom. Yeah. It seems like attacks come from the left or the right, whatever that is right. in a given country from, uh, you know, if it's the new religion in power and, you know, the threats to religious freedom comes from, come from many directions possibly. And about 75% but, uh, of the world's population now is in a country that does not have full religious freedom. Wow. So what are your thoughts, takeaways, recommendations around, you know, the way forward to sustain religious freedom in America, to try to uh, encourage it in other places? Um, if you say 75% of people still live without it. Well, it's, it's really, it's not so much a, a legal things that have to be changed as much as, as attitudes and culture. So for one, there has to be a real uh, all for one one for all attitude among different religious groups that, you know, the threat to one religious group's religious rights is a threat to all of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, at this moment, that's about rallying to the defense of American Muslims. Mm-hmm. In other moments, it's been different groups, but that's the test right now mm-hmm. is what do we, how do we react to the attacks on American Muslims? Um, I happen to think that a really important element of this would be for America's evangelicals to reclaim their moral leadership on this. Mm-hmm. You know, they really were, you know, as I said, the most important group in American history for advancing religious freedom. If, if they were to, to uh, re-embrace the philosophy of the, of the 19th century evangelicals, and really lead the charge on religious freedom. Not, I don't mean just the rhetoric of religious freedom now, which most of the rhetoric around religious freedom from, from Christians has to do with protecting themselves mm-hmm. from incursions on their rights. Mm-hmm. And some of that's very legitimate. Like there mm-hmm. are some incursions on their rights. So mm-hmm. it's not like that 
use of religious freedom is totally wrong. Mm -hmm. But uh, honestly, it's, it's mostly minor stuff compared to the attacks on Muslims. And so American Christians are ironically, I shouldn't paint it with such a broad brush, some evangelical leaders are at, at the exact moment where they're appealing to the rest of the country to respect their religious freedom rights mm -hmm. are part of the attack on American Muslims, which is the number one attack on religious freedom. Wow. So, you know, to be both consistent and and worthy of the res of the respect that they're asking for from other people, they need to take the lead in defending Muslims. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and that would just put them. It's not like that would be a you know a completely new thing for evangelical thought. That's just them going back to what they had been arguing for two hundred years, mm -hmm. uh, but not in the last fifty years. So right. I think that would be you know a really important positive development. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also think that part of what has to happen is that secular Americans have to have to adjust too. You know, there is this kind of growth of a, aggressive secularism that uh, has the potential to sort of subordinate religion right. in American society. Now, I tend to think that the fears about that are a little bit exaggerated, but they're not hmm. fabricated. Like mm -hmm. it's a real thing. Right. It's a real concern. And so I think that secular Americans have to also take the view of like, well, if you want if you want religious people to respect your right to you know be non-believers, you have to respect their right to not just pray privately at home or in their churches, but actually live their lives according to their faiths, including in public spaces. So I, I do think that the, you know secular people have to have to um, be part of the deal. And make make accommodations and compromises themselves, and and American Muslims, I think you know, need to what they need to do is what I think they've already been doing. Frankly, is uh, they need to continue to transform Islam in America in a way that uh, emphasizes American values, mm -hmm. and that really has been happening a lot. Like mm. you look at it with with uh, Muslim women, mm -hmm. you know, there's a really there's a really deep strain of feminism among Muslim women that yeah. sure doesn't exist. In many other Muslim countries, it's a, it's like America, an American stamp on Islam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's I think is is a great development, and so I think is American Muslims need to continue to lead the way as champions of the idea that Islam and democracy are very compatible. Hmm. There's a there's a line here in the book uh, that I really like where you say um, depriving someone of their money or property can certainly wound. But blocking their path to God deprives them of something even more important, their own quest to find meaning in life. And uh, I think that's a, a powerful way to frame it. Um, you do so much work uh, in, 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 you know, in journalism and on training. You know, uh, in, you know, press freedom is part of the First Amendment, right, with religious freedom. So it's interesting you say the greatest invention was religious, uh, religious liberty, religious freedom. Um, Press but, freedom is a close runner-up. <laughs> yeah, and how, how do those two work together? Because a lot of our listeners are journalists in different parts of the world oh, and okay. might be interested to hear your take on how those two kind of work for societies and how they help each other, possibly, or not. <laughs> well, they are most... Well, they're, they, that's true. It does actually cut both ways. Um, there are a whole bunch of different moments in American history where religious freedom rights were gained because they were tied together with press freedom rights mm -hmm. or, or with freedom of, of speech in general, the other parts of the First Amendment. So mm -hmm. this was particularly evident around uh, in the period right before the Civil War 
where um, the anti-slavery writings um, often were done by ministers or, or, or distributed by ministers. And so when the South started passing laws designed to uh, clamp down on anti-slavery sentiment, they did it from both sides. They shut down printing presses and publications that were, were anti-slavery, and they prosecuted ministers hmm. who were anti-slavery. Sometimes the, the presses were run by ministers. You know, mm-hmm. it was the same. Abolitionists. Yeah, it was the yeah. same people. So there, there, was this, there was this merger. And, and conversely, when they were trying to solve this problem with the 14th Amendment, they were very aware of the fact that, like, if you, inf- if, if you violate freedom of religion, you'll end up violating freedom of speech and vice versa. So they would go and strengthen. And, and when the Jehovah's Witnesses, a century later, were making their case for religious freedom, they also made it on both religious freedom and freedom of press mm-hmm. and assembly grounds because they were publishing their sentiments and distributing them. And they said, this is also a violation of, of press rights. Now, where, uh, as with everything else, when you have a very free press, uh, you sometimes have irresponsible journalists. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of American history, whether it was the persecution of the Mormons or American Indians or, or Muslims in modern times, there have been publications and journalists that fueled the fire by promoting false stereotypes and facts about American religion. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely has happened in modern times with, uh, with media um, uh, denigrating Islam, or more than denigrating, just pe- peddling falsehoods and, mm-hmm. and negative stereotypes. And, but you also had that with uh, publications that wrote about Mormonism and mm-hmm. the 18th century and... Um, and Catholics, and so mm-hmm. you know, it's always, it's a mixed bag. It's like everything yeah. else. I mean, there's examples that you can point to of uh, of the press getting it wrong, as well as many others where they were getting it right. So I, I would, I guess, my only message to my brethren as, as journalists is that it really matters. You know how understanding religion mm-hmm. as a journalist is really important, and Absolutely. a lot of journalists don't. Right. right. And um, and being nuanced in how you cover religion is really important. Um, hmm. And that, you know, our religious freedom rights really uh, do depend on the press in part having a responsible attitude towards how they write about religion. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful to talk to you because, you you, you know, this work is a great contribution to history and its current thinking on, on these topics. And these are topics that we at, you know, the Media Project and Religion Unplugged cared the most about, which is religion in public life, that role, um, and press freedom, religious freedom, uh, and, and religious literacy in addition to right. um, media literacy. So this is really a great book. I hope that um, listeners read Sacred Liberty, buy a copy, um, buy copies for your friends. Thanks, Stephen, for being with us today. It's been wonderful to hear about your book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. For more information and a full transcript of the interview with Stephen, log on to our website at religionunplugged.com. And for more information about who we are, check out our organization website at themediaproject.org.